You're listening to Greater Greater Portland on Portland Radio Project 99.1 FM. I'm Xavier D. Stickler. Hello, I'm Bradley Bondi. Hey, I'm Jenna Demmel. Uh, and today we're going to talk about the Interstate Bridge, better known as the I-5 Bridge between Portland, Oregon and Vancouver, Washington. And we have a guest. Greater Greater Portland is very excited to have Chris Smith be joining us. How's it going, Chris? It's going great. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we're glad to have you because uh, you're very versed on this subject of the Interstate Bridge and the Replacement Project. Can you tell our listeners uh, just a bit about your background and your political involvement in all of this? Uh, sure. I've been uh, what I would characterize as a low-car transportation activist for about a quarter century. And I had the opportunity as, uh, at that time, a transportation blogger to follow the last project, the CRC or Columbia River Crossing. Uh, this time around, I find myself in more of an ad advocacy role being part of the No More Freeways campaign, which uh, started out to oppose the Rosequater widening, but has since found lots of other work uh, with both this project and with the I-205 widening. Um, so Chris, what exactly is the Interstate Bridge Replacement Project as you know it, and what's going on with the project right now? Well, the interstate bridge replacement, uh, I think first and foremost, I want to say uh, it, it's not a bridge replacement. It actually replaces two bridges and seven freeway interchanges. So uh, the name is a bit of a misnomer. Um, but the current proposal, the so-called locally preferred alternative or LPA, uh, would uh, start at the Victory Boulevard exit in Portland going north, uh, update that. Uh, interchange, uh, completely replace the Marine Drive interchange, replace the Harbor Bridge to Hayden Island, uh, rebuild the Hayden Island interchange, and then replace the actual bridge itself, uh, and then four more interchanges uh, on the Washington side of the river. So uh, it's a big, big project. <laughs> so just as a joking aside, if you had to name it something different, what would you call it? Uh, we like to call it the... the uh, five-mile freeway uh, expansion boondoggle. Hence the title of this episode. We're calling it Boondoggle Boogaloo. So I suppose, um, why why do you feel this is a huge boondoggle for both um, Washington and Oregon? Uh, I think the, the core problem is that it conflates two sets of issues. Um, you know, we've talked about the fact that uh, the current bridges aren't seismically stable uh, in a potential Cascadia subduction zone earthquake. And I think Everyone has agreed that that's a concern. Um, uh, and th it's also been pointed out that the, you know, the transit and active transportation connections across the river are, to say the least, subpar. Uh, and I think that pretty universally feel like uh, those need to be addressed. Uh, but that gets conflated with uh, traffic congestion and limited freight mobility. And that's where I think we start to go astray is that we're trying to use uh, an engineering solution to address both those problems when that's uh, more suitable to the, you know, the seismic uh, active transportation and transit problems. Uh, organization I'm with, No More Freeways, believes that the, you know, the best and really only effective way to address the congestion issues is with pricing. And this project does include pricing, but really only to pay for the huge construction bill that comes along with the project. So uh, we'd love to see those two issues separated uh, really focus on getting folks across the Columbia River itself, uh, leave the interchange questions for another day, and in the meantime, use pricing to manage the congestion. 
And, you know, going back to that cost of, like, the interchange, the orig in the uh, Columbia River Crossing proposal, it was around 40% of that total 3 to $4 billion cost was going to those interchange revisions. And I think this time we're probably going to be looking in the same ballpark as that. So it, it's, in fact, according to the original Columbia River Crossing uh, numbers, 30% um, of that budget, about a billion, was going towards the bridge itself. This is mostly a freeway expansion and like interchange tinkering project more than anything else. So now I wanna go into a little bit of the details on what IBR is proposing. Um, in the locally preferred alternative adopted last year, um, the IBR commission basically said they want um, eight lanes, four in each direction, uh, basically going along this kind of semi-greenwashing narrative that they're not adding any capacity. They're still going to have three through lanes, but that they're just going to have an, like an extra auxiliary lane for merging on and off um, like that Hayden Island uh, Marine Drive interchange. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, they haven't released any specific engineering models and some of the concern that organizations like No More Freeways have is that they're going to build it with enough room to simply like restripe it and greatly expand capacity. Yeah, that really goes back to the CRC story when uh, you may remember that the city of Portland argued that it should be reduced from 12 lanes to 10 lanes and the project reluctantly agreed, but we went back and checked those, those drawings and lo and behold, the, the actual width of the structure did not change. They just changed the striping plan uh, on top of the concrete. Um, and we have similar concerns about the current design. I would note that uh, while the LPA uh, locally preferred alternative is officially eight lanes, uh, several of the project partners uh, have included as a condition of their approval of the LPA uh, that a 10 lane variation be studied. So in the environmental impact statements being prepared now, we will see both eight lane and 10 lane options. Um, and obviously we want the, uh, the least width uh, possible for this project. Now the IBR does uh, propose continuing the Max Yale line into Vancouver, which is something that was a huge part of contention with the Columbia River Crossing. Um, it has to its benefit uh, the fact that it's not going to try and do the like awful at grade street running thing that they were proposing with the CRC. Uh, that's good. Um, they've kind of cut back the end terminus though to the Vancouver library. Um, and they're also possibly not going to include dedicated bus lanes. So it would be like rail only and not a dedicated transit way. Yeah, that's an open question at the moment. And, um, you know, many of us transit fans are actually agnostic about whether it's light rail or buses. I've seen, you know, at, at some point there has to be an interchange between bus and light rail since, you know, Vancouver primarily uses bus rapid transit as their form of high capacity transit. So somewhere uh, you're probably going to have to make a switch between bus rapid transit and light rail. Whether that happens in downtown Vancouver, happens on Hayden Island, um, not particularly concerned about that. We know it has to happen somewhere. Uh, but we'd like to not be locked into a modal decision for all eternity. So, you know, our idea is that it would be ideal if the, ex the exclusive transit way that does is included in the design for the bridge uh, would be agnostic. So you could run either light rail or buses 
uh, kind of like the Tilikum Crossing. I mean, we built that bridge uh, so it could accommodate, you know, Macs, streetcars, buses uh, pretty easily. Um, the thing that's been suggested as a cost reduction is that in that exclusive transit way, uh, the light rail tracks be put uh, on concrete ties. So you know, imagine you've got these sort of concrete logs and the rail is attached to the top of those. That would make it impossible uh, to run a bus uh, across that. We think that would be a mistake. I'm told it's a little bit more a little bit more expensive to do it with the rails embedded in concrete, which is the way that the Tilikum does it and the way you see it in downtown Portland. Uh, but for the long term, that would be a you know, much more flexible option because in the future, we may want to run buses. Uh, you know, certainly, we want to run trains. Uh, we shouldn't be locking anything out. Well, and it's it's going to be a lot cheaper to build it that so it's flexible right from the bat than having to, you know, one day tear it all up and redo it again. Certainly. So as the plan stands right now, um, I've, I've been told that the Coast Guard is uh, upset because they want an 178-foot clearance maintained akin to the Fremont Bridge, but IBR is pushing for 116. How, uh, how would you describe, well, I know you're not a liaison to the Coast Guard necessarily, but what, what would be the problems with the 116 feet being what is proposed? So the Coast Guard issue goes back to uh, the CRC project again, where the project started out uh, insisting they could build a bridge with 95 feet of clearance over the Columbia uh, and acknowledged it might have to buy a few sailboats from people that were taller. Uh, but in fact, when they got through the environmental impact statement and went to do their paperwork for the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard does have to issue a, a bridge permit, so it, you know this cannot happen without the Coast Guard approval, the Coast Guard said, no, we don't, want we don't want 95 feet, we want more. We'd like to keep 178 feet as we have now with the current lift bridge. Uh, and then ensued a, a whole lot of negotiation because they had already spent in excess of $100 million designing a 95 foot bridge. Uh, the result of that uh, negotiation was 116 foot design. And it took a year and millions more to redesign the bridge that 116 feet. Um, the Coast Guard really felt like it was backed into a corner. And as a result, the Coast Guard and the Federal Highway Administration renegotiated their process for doing this and uh, entered into a new memorandum of agreement in 2014, the year after the CRC died, that said that uh, there would be a, a clearance process before the EIS started so that uh, we wouldn't be evaluating options in the EIS uh, that didn't uh, meet the Coast Guard requirements. And in fact, this time around, the Coast Guard did that process before the EIS got restarted, and they said, we still want 178 feet. Uh, and the project is insisting uh, that, uh, that they can do it in 116 and that the, you know, any river users north of the bridge that might have demand for more can basically be bought off. Um, and the Coast Guard you know, very recently put its foot down and said, hey, we have an agreement. The result is that um, they are also going to evaluate a lift bridge uh, as part of the, the EIS, and they're doing what's called a supplemental EIS because they're still basing it on the EIS from last time around with the CRC. Uh, but just last week, they announced that they would be uh, including uh, a lift span evaluation as part of the EIS. So it's a, a long and tragic tale <laughs> with the involvement of the Coast Guard. It really sounds like ODOT isn't being too friendly to the Coast Guard. They're just trying to force the Coast Guard's hand yeah, they're sort of daring the Coast Guard to not approve the bridge. Um, 
and they're using the excuse that they did have a, a previous record decision back in 2013 to do 116 feet. But you know, the permit that was issued at that time has since expired. So um, there's a lot of finger pointing going back and forth on the issue. Yeah, just kind of imagining the hypothetical of, well, we built this bridge. What are you going to do, Coast Guard? But no, legally, seriously, what could the Coast Guard do if it does get built? Is it just out of their hands at that point? Well, they can't actually start construction until the Coast Guard issues a permit. So that's um, something. <laughs> the, the day of reckoning comes before they pour the concrete. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> um, so segueing into that even further, uh, just further issues with the current proposal. Uh, Xavier, I know you know a lot about this too. Uh, do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I would say one of my biggest kind of bones to pick with the current IBR proposal is that, you know, they haven't released any like traffic models, um, but it's kind of been like ODOT and WASH.MO to like not account meaningfully for the reduced traffic demand that might occur due to things like congestion pricing or tolling. And what we know this time going into it is the expense of this project guarantees that there is going to be some sort of payment in order to cross the bridge. What remains uncertain is if that's gonna be like a similar payment that's going to be imposed simultaneously on the 205 Glen Jackson Bridge. But in any case, it really seems like ODOT is averse to considering the possibility that fewer people are going to be commuting between Multnomah and Clark counties um, as a result for having to like pay to do so. They're seriously trying to toll that bridge as part of the plan? So they have no way to pay for this unless they toll the bridge. The finance plan that they've put forward so far has three components. Basically one third is funding upfront from the states, one third is uh, federal grants, and the last third is from tolling revenue. So without the tolling, uh, this project doesn't really have a path forward. Is it tolling for just a specific amount of time or uh, indefinitely? Uh, well, that's one of the questions. Uh, ultimately, the, the two states have to agree on that. Um, you know, in Oregon, the Oregon Transportation Commission is the tolling authority. Uh, Washington has to figure out um, how they're going to authorize a tolling authority uh, for this bridge the, uh, as a joint project. Um, but you know, we have not seen a firm commitment on that. I can tell you that uh, ODOT in other places in the region is pursuing tolling as a permanent feature, uh, both to continue funding their highway projects uh, and to pay for basic maintenance. So, you know, that's another show, I think. Oof. <laughs> That'll still make, well, I don't know. How do you see that playing into uh, those who commute from Vancouver to Portland and vice versa? So it, it's clearly at least for some households, going to be a, a big affordability issue. And the, uh, the Oregon tolling plan that's coming together would include uh, low income discounts or even perhaps exemptions for the lowest income folks. Um, so the equity of that system is clearly a concern. Um, I can say that at least some folks are thinking about how to deal with that. In terms of design, it kind of seems like no matter, even if you know the Coast Guard is able to agree to 116 feet, um, we're going to be looking at a very tall bridge over downtown Vancouver, which I think is going to be immensely disappointing considering all the work that's been done in the last few years to make downtown's, uh, or downtown Vancouver's waterfront a genuinely pleasant place. Yeah, I'm surprised that we haven't heard more from downtown Vancouver interests about that. Um, 
Yeah, I will say that the mayor and city council uh, seem pretty firmly set on getting this project done. They see the issues with the current bridge is impacting their downtown, so they want to move past that. But the, uh, the visual uh, aspect of what will happen on the waterfront, um, I agree with you, is going to be um, quite challenging, as it is on Hayden Island. There will basically be a structure 50 feet in the air that will divide Hayden Island in half. Um, and even at you know, the Vancouver waterfront, they want to add a light rail station to the waterfront. It's going to be six stories in the air. The transit station is going to be six floors up? Yep. Is that only going to be accessible by elevator? That that sounds like a very long escalator ride. Uh, yes, I think they're planning on an elevator. What's even more interesting is uh, if you're on a bicycle, there's going to be a, a, a corkscrew to get you down to the ground. How many loop-de-loops will I have to do to get up to the bridge? <laughs> well, you know, there's a, uh, an engineer in Seattle who's actually done the math on that. I think he's got six or seven. Six oh, or dear. seven loop-de-loops, all right. Oh, dear. Oh, dearie my. <laughs> um, so we've been talking about this a little bit. It's it's going to be a an astronomically expensive project, and uh, it's shaping up to cost, is it $7.5 billion in total? Is that right? The price range is 5 to 7.5, and that compares to the prior project, where it was 3.2 to 4.8. So it's gone up a little over 50% uh, in the last decade. Oof. Well, do you imagine that ODOT would be able to keep it in that price range? Well, certainly their track record is not very good. If you look at you know sort of the projects of $100 million or more that ODOT has done, in the last couple of decades, most of them come in two or three times their original price estimate. Two or three times is Ooh. one crazy cost overrun. And yeah, just given given all of the other things that, in particular, the city of Portland has to deal with, this it, it's starting to seem more and more like a boondoggle. You're convincing me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, uh, well, uh, there are other things that should take precedence directly in our city. Like, I've been driving over potholes all the time when I commute, uh, making Amtrak cascades faster and more frequent, for example, or making it more safer for pedestrians in our city. There's lots of other things we could be doing besides besides blowing all of our money on this from, from what we're discussing. Well, and if we look at the things ODOT is responsible for, that does not include most of the potholes in Portland. Those are on city streets. So, uh, there's, there's some on the so-called ODOT orphan highways, which are the you know, things that used to be the highways before we built the interstate. Uh, roads like Barber, or until recently 82nd, until that was transferred to the, the city, or Powell, Powell Boulevard. Um, we kill people with great regularity on those orphan highways. And a lot of us would love to see uh, lot more dollars dedicated to those and a lot less to this project. I would say that even at No More Freeways, um, we agree that we need to deal with the seismic replacement and uh, we'd very much like to see a high quality transit connection get made, uh, but the freeway components are something that we'd be happy to see removed from the project. For sure. And uh, while we're on the topic of uh, something that like Portland in particular touts itself as, we're trying to be more of a green city. So how would you talk about the bridge in relation to uh, climate change, um, Portland's role in retaking the mantle of environmentalism and progressive urban design and just relation to everything that's going on with the bridge. No More Freeways is part of a larger coalition that's working on this project. There are 32 organizations in uh, what's called the Just Crossing Alliance, and climate is a primary consideration. 
so we need to have essentially fewer trips by auto. Transit will help that. Uh, tolling or pricing will help that. We have not seen, however, the math on you know, how the uh, sort of the lessening of friction through adding freeway lanes uh, counterbalances with the transit opportunity and the pricing that should suppress some trips. So we're waiting to see those numbers. So what do you think is the most important aspect of a bridge replacement in terms of reducing carbon emissions? Uh, well, it's how much driving will happen. Now, the project, of course, says they're going to you know, use green construction methods. Um, you know, probably the construction equipment will use renewable diesel, and they you know, may use uh, green concrete that uh, has fewer carbon emissions. But over the life of the project, it's the amount of driving that will happen on the bridge that will be determinant. And you know, if you go back to uh, the latest IPCC, uh, uh, International Panel on Climate Change, you know, they said pretty clearly that in the transportation sector, the only way uh, we meet our greenhouse gas uh, goals is if we both electrify the fleet, uh, but also if we reduce the amount of driving. Electrification alone, even at a very aggressive pace, doesn't get the carbon emissions down fast enough. It has to be coupled uh, with big investments and shifting people to other modes. And that needs to be part of this bridge planning as well. I'd like to transition us to now talking about like an alternative to the bridge as currently designed by the IBR. Um, I've been fortunate enough and uh, No More Freeways has been fortunate enough to get a, a look at work done by an engineer based out of Seattle. Bob Ortblad and, and his kind of immersed tunnel. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And interestingly, um, during the CRC, uh, more than 30 alternatives were looked at uh, for the crossing, including a board tunnel, uh, which was discarded, I think, for valid reasons. But they never looked at this technology, which is called the immersed tube tunnel. And the idea is you basically build uh, tunnel sections out of concrete or steel on the land and then float them out into the river and sink them into a, a trench that you dredge uh, at the bottom of the, the, the river floor, basically. Um, so it's not terribly deep. The, uh, the depth is about 50 feet. You, you get them in the trench, you cover them with gravel to you know, keep anchors and things from disturbing it. Um, so it results in, in you know, much less steep grades than we're going to see with the fixed span bridge that's being proposed. Um, a lot of debate about the relative cost between the bridge and the tunnel. I honestly don't know the answer of which would be um, less expensive, but you lose all those visual impacts. Uh, and of course you get an infinite clearance for ships going over the top of the tunnel. Um, so there are big advantages there. Uh, we'd very much like to see that seriously evaluated as an option uh, in the EIS. Uh, unfortunately, the project did a very cursory assessment uh, and discarded the option and you know, just some obvious flaws in the assessment, they made different assumptions about where the shipping channel is than they are for the bridge. So it's not in any way an apples and apples comparison. Well, that's a shame because uh, we could have had our own channel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, anyways, um, so uh, Bradley, you actually sent, uh, there was this tweet that you sent to us in our group chat this morning, and it was about the... Uh, Mayor Pro Tem of Vancouver, uh, he was wanting the uh, the tunnel option to be studied <laughs> even more further. Yeah, Ty Stober. Yeah, so uh, Ty Stober was talking to, in a Facebook post. He was talking about 
wanting a tunnel study because it would make the waterfront in downtown a bit more pleasant than the extremely tall bridge they're looking at building. Um, so it sounds like there's some political support for it. Yeah, Ty was basically reacting to the inclusion of uh, the lift span study in the EIS and essentially you know, took the position that, well, if you're going to study uh, a lift span, which a lot of us don't want because of the impacts on both transit and traffic crossing the river, um, why don't you take the time to look at a tunnel? Um, and you know, he certainly appreciates that the, the current bridge design is going to have a big visual impact on downtown. So that's at least one person who seems to get it. Now, why, why do you think ODOT doesn't want to look at the tunnel option? Because I, I, if I recall correctly, Vancouver up in British Columbia, they have that same sort of tunnel under a river, and it's, it works fine. Yeah, that's the Massey Tunnel up in Vancouver, and um, there's an existing tunnel, an immersed tube tunnel, the same technology built, I think, in the 50s that they're now looking at replacing. And for a while, they evaluated uh, a bridge to replace it. Now, now they've gone back to basically a, a new immersed tube tunnel uh, as the solution for that crossing. Uh, you know, if I'm being cynical, um, I would say that you know, if we wanted to build a tunnel, we'd probably need to think about hiring a different team that's got a lot more experience with tunnels. Okay, so it's mostly folks just not wanting to do something they're not already familiar with. That's certainly one possibility. You know, there, there may be differences in costs, but until we do you know, a thorough evaluation, we can't really quantify that and, and trade off you know, the costs versus the benefits. So I want to transition us to talking about um, how we would actually get to that point where we can seriously evaluate these um, other options and kind of shift the conversation towards what I would consider may to be a little bit more climate-minded way. So the next big um, opportunity for public input, uh, well, two points I think that are important. One is that the Oregon legislature is being asked to provide a billion dollars this session. And uh, we're certainly asking the legislature to ask some hard questions before they do that uh, and consider providing less than the billion dollars asked for and, and make the project scope smaller. Uh, but the next opportunity for the public is when the draft EIS comes out, which will be later this year, and then there'll be an official public comment period, and we can get community reaction to this. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, so how can folks keep uh, updated on this project and the work that you're doing? Uh, so the best place is at the Just Crossing Alliance, which I mentioned, um, which is the uh, Alliance of 32 Environmental uh, Transportation and Environmental Justice Organizations uh, that's arguing for the climate-friendly solution to this project. And you can go to justcrossing.org, and at the bottom of the page, you'll find an email sign-up form. And Chris, if people want to keep up with you on social media or your website or uh, anything that you're up to, uh, where can they find you? Uh, so they'll probably best find my musings on Twitter, where I'm at ChrisSmithUS, all one word. Nice. And Bradley, Jenna, where can they find us other than here? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Bondi underscore Bradley. And I'm on Instagram at J-K-M-D-E-M, J-A-Y-K-A-Y-E-M-D-E-M. And I'm on Twitter at Xavier D. Stickler. Uh, thanks again so much to you, Chris, for stopping by Greater Greater Portland. We really appreciate your insights and expertise on this subject. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. 
Now, if you'd like to keep up with the show, you can do so on prp.fm, as well as Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also be able to find full-length videos with graphics and slides alongside our episodes on YouTube at the channel Greater Greater Portland. For just $2 a month, you can also help us in our mission of making Portland a better place to live, as well as get access to exclusive written works. And of course, you can listen to us live and in stereo on 99.1 FM, Portland Radio Project, every second and third Sundays at 4 p.m. Thank you for listening. From the Rose City, this has been Greater Greater Portland. <laughs>